Hi, my name is Ajne Dawkins, and I am currently obsessed with the wardrobes of the bougie black girls on TV from like the 90s. I'm Brittany Rogers, and I thought it was a scam, but the girlies were not lying when they said that the Not Liz box braids were a game changer because I got my first set, y'all, and they're so light. They're light and perfect, so that's what I'm obsessed with today. We are the host of Versus, the podcast where poets confront the ideas that move them. Today we're interviewing Wes Matthews, a phenomenal poet who we had the honor of meeting in his days as a youth poet. And the pleasure was ours. It was. It was ours. (laughs) Hands down, okay? Hands down. And it really has me meditating on our days as youth poets. It was a wild time. (laughs) Looking back, Bess, what was that time for you like? Wow. My time as a youth poet. It was strange. It was strange for a lot of reasons. It was strange because I think I missed out on a lot of some of the like traditional youth poet things, Mm -hmm. even though I was very like in the youth poet culture. Mm -hmm. So like I never went to BNV. Because I always had another commitment in the summertime, but I did go to LTAB, but I wasn't competing like in traditional LTAB. I was just there for the festival. So I really, depending on who and how you came in, so much of youth poetry culture is like embedded in slam and this like really deep competition, sense of competition. But I never experienced that in the traditional way because my first real slam was Rust Belt Ah. and Rust Belt the vibes are like they're different they're very different it's very communal so my time as a youth poet was fraught with teenage angst with a lot of dramatics a lot of hunger though for Mm -hmm. the craft and the community like I was like I was like 16, like, I'm writing Sistinas. I was not, like, I was so excited. Ooh, made us drive around to everything. I I will never forget that night we got caught in a snowstorm because Ajene had to, just had to go down to see, who was it, Strivers Row? Yeah, something like that. And (laughs) they were performing at a school two or three hours away from Detroit. (laughs) Yeah, we wasn't being stingy, but we knew that if Ajene wanted to go, that meant that we would all have to drive. And we definitely got caught in a snowstorm and had to stay overnight because Ajene just had to go that night. Uh, it was fun times. When I think back on my time as a youth poet, it also was interesting. My first year or two in Citywide Poets, I actually, don't fight me, mom. I actually was like sneaking the Citywide Poets because mm. I just wasn't quite sure that I would be allowed to go, which maybe in hindsight doesn't make any sense. But, you know, oldest kid, oldest kid responsibilities. So I didn't want to run the risk of being told no. (laughs) So I just didn't ask. And if I didn't ask, nobody could tell me no. (laughs) So every other day of the week, I would purposefully like catch the bus that I knew was going to take me the longest to get home. And because transportation is so raggedy in Detroit, shout out our city government that the likelihood of it taking me two, three hours to get home is well within reason, depending on what bus you catch. Mm. So I would purposefully catch the buses that I knew would get me home the latest every other day of the week so that on Wednesdays <laughs> I could go to Citywide Poets and then catch the quickest bus to get home and it'd be about the same time. Baby! So, <laughs> shout out to folks um, who had to lie to go to poetry <laughs> because that was that was real. Listen, because I I just didn't want to miss it. I love the I love the community space. Thinking back on my poems, I'm like, oh, I was writing like three, four page long poems about who knows what. <laughs> I remember the first poem that I wrote that was like shorter and it was like persona. It was about Detroit, and I remember my mentor at the time being like this. Okay, I'm proud of you. This is a poem. This is growth. And I was like, ooh. And I think after that, I was like, oh, no, I want that. I want that feeling. That's what I that's what I want. So thinking about that and thinking about watching folks who I knew as youth just, like, shine and blossom and be brilliant and quite literally blow me away with the work that they're doing— Wes Matthews? Listen. What? Because, want to be clear, I was not thinking writing nothing like that. You heard me. I was like, what? 
I would come to the poems. I go, these grown up poems. These are grown up. Like, no edits. You know how to do that. No edits. Okay. Can you teach me? Actually. So we have the honor of interviewing him today. We're going to kick off the bio so you can hear the brilliance that is Wes Matthews. Wes Matthews is a Detroit-born, Philadelphia-based poet and essayist. Wes served as a 2018-2019 Philadelphia Youth Poet Laureate and received the Congressional Award for Outstanding and Invaluable Service to the Community. He is the recipient of the 2020 College Alumni Society Prize for his poetry and the 2020 Lillian and Benjamin Levy Award for his music criticism. Without further ado, let's get into it. We are so excited to have you here today and get to pick your brain and all of the good things. We were wondering if you could start us off with a poem. Absolutely. Thank you. This poem is called Black Narcissists. You would never understand the bounds of my love until you have been marked for death, death by desire, a live body, winged and caught in palisade teeth, lost pride struggling against the grain. Vermin preyed on my handsomeness, not beauty, but joy. So I figured this departure from body rehearsed over and over until my blood no longer startled, until I gave up on seeking escape. Once I traced the grooves of my back with an unfired arrow, mapped out the breakaways of my nerves, became immortal only in the sense that I could not love anything, living or dead. This was not a long ceremony, love's haunted language burning slowly under my tongue. As everything fell still, I was already by the pool of my fate. A search for meaning surfaced as an illusion of light falling to catch an exact entry into my body. Only scars dimming in the twilight cradle. Like water... The intimacy of being alive will carry whomever is daring enough to trust it. Some days I have no other choice but to open my eyes. Wes, why would you say that? <laughs> like what was that water, like the water, intimacy <laughs> of being alive? What? Thank you. Yes, thank you. You know it's wild because that's where we was both stuck at. <laughs> we, yeah, we both looked at each other. The intimacy of being alive. What? Because now I got to rethink about what being alive means. <laughs> now thank I got to resituate the whole situation. Mm, also put me very much in a conversation with Tony Morrison's Water Has Perfect Memory. <laughs> like uh, the combination oh. of the two was like. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Start us off. Start us off. Mm, thank you. <laughs> and what's moving you these days, Wes? I've really been moved recently with the the concept, the art, the creation of ecstatic poetry. It is the word ecstatic coming from the Greek word ecstasis, which means to basically to stand or step outside of oneself. And so ecstatic poetry often is associated with this word self-transcendence. I think that hits on a lot of its points, but it's kind of an incomplete picture. When I think of ecstatic poetry, I think of an engagement with the human capacity for wonder and revelation. It's looking into the world, looking at all the beauty and the triumph and also the tragedy and the failures and and being like, and learning to love it, learning to embrace it, learning to appreciate it, seeking to encounter the beauty and the essence of all things. Um... It, con- it sounds like really lofty and it is a little too lofty for me, which is why I like to break it down in my poetry and like bite-sized pieces and images that I can resonate with and that I can actually communicate with some semblance of clarity. But yeah, it's really mystical, kind of very spiritual for me. Greek mythology has been like a big avenue for, for me to getting there. I have a lot of these like Greek mythology poems, so Black Narcissist being one of them. Th- those were my kind of like bedtime stories as a kid. And what I want to communicate is I think we're missing a piece of the puzzle when we talk about Greek mythology today, because we present these stories and these tales and these myths as cautionary tales. So, for instance, in in the story of Narcissus, you have this handsome man who falls in love with his reflection in water and becomes depressed that the reflection can't love him back and it's unrequited love. And then he commit suicide or dies a tragic death, whatever, in whatever version 
And so people will single that out as like, okay, that's a singular person. That's narcissist. Don't be like narcissist. Don't be that way. I feel like these stories and their original purpose or their their original intent or goal was to to illuminate human fallibility, human failures, human foible, or like, you know, kind of like be like, okay, narcissist is all of us. Narcissist. The reason the story is intriguing to me because at our core, what are humans and what do we want or desire? And one of the things that we have a natural desire for is to be loved and not only to be loved, but to be seen as beautiful. And I think both of those things are incorporated in the story of narcissists. And so when I think about Black narcissists, I think about the uphill climb that Black people have trekked to claim their beauty and assert beauty in the face of a society that either won't acknowledge your beauty or only acknowledges the superficial aspects of that beauty. And so I, I was thinking about my question was, okay, so how would narcissists like how does black narcissists see this world that that treats him terribly, see this world that doesn't really love him, see this world that pines after him and longs for him, but doesn't really long for the person he is and his inner person? I and mean, how does he learn to love it? And how does he learn to navigate? And how does he learn to and admire himself and love and learn that his and, and teach himself that he is lovable. And so that's what that poem kind of is. I feel like it's one of the poems that I'm most proud of in the sense that it precisely almost what I want it to be or what I wanted it to be when I started writing. So that's where that came from. Oh, Lord, Wes, we in, we five <laughs> minutes in and I think it brings up the idea of like, what does it mean for us to be humanized as well? I think I appreciate the fact that you use mythology to to trouble that because I feel like mythology is something that's often ascribed to like whiteness. And I love yeah. you using it to explore that specificity of blackness. Yeah, I was just like, these stories are too human to just be whites or Greek or European. What what I want to do, I have, you know, a poem, Black Icarus and Black Prometheus and all this stuff. I'm just like obsessed with this idea that you can claim this thing and it still be kind of universal or it still it still makes sense in the human picture. Like we are we are a part of that. Can I ask a follow-up question just because one of the things you mentioned when talking about <clears throat> the ecstatic poetry was this like mystical spiritual element and then you moved yeah. from that into mythology and I'm wondering if you could talk more about how mythology, myth-making, mysticism, et cetera, et cetera, are embedded in your process. Like when you say it's spiritual, when you say it's that, can you can you maybe just explain that a little more? Mm-hmm. Maybe in another life or maybe even in this life, I would have been or will be somebody who like really studies and gets into myths and stuff like that, because I think it it uproots the deepest part of the human consciousness. Like, mm. And so I think what intrigues me about poetry and, and mystical poetry is that, OK, so I think humans have a desire to, to feel like or to encounter truth truth about this universe, truth about this world. It's going to, this is going to get like really cosmological for no reason. <laughs> we love like to see it. At Go least, at least Go I deep. feel this in my life, a deep, a deep uh, yearning to counter truth. And then there being a tension because you'll never fully know or comprehend that truth. There are things you just can't know, even about ourselves and our own bodies and our own lives, you know, and stuff like that. There's just things you can't know, even about your own memories, about mm. the things that you care about the most. And that's kind of tragic. And so I feel like a part of our resolution to that is we have this dilemma. We want truth, but we there are obstacles that keep us from getting to full truth. So what do we do? We make sense of it. And we make sense of it through myth. We make sense of it through story. We make sense of it by through escapism, fantasy, stuff like that. And not to say that that mythology is the same or on par with fantasy and escapism, because it's much, obviously, it's much deeper than that, I think. But that's why I think a lot of these like myths that we have are so similar across cultures and across peoples and across time. We just humans love the same things and we desire the same things. You know, that is what inspires me and that's what keeps me writing. And so that's why I like to pull out these like ancient myths and stuff like that and find either put a modern twist on it, put my own twist on it, 
or just keep it as it is and just truly bask in the beauty of it because those things don't really age. Those things, we don't outgrow those things. I heard you say that like trying to unravel that truth is what keeps you writing, which I think is such like a dope concept, right? That I have this forever question or this forever, this forever pondering that I'm going to be wondering about and reconciling with for the rest of forever. But so being a person who met you like really early in the youth poet game and then watching you transition out and then watching you transition, you know, into like a more professional sphere, I'm wondering, you know, I'm wondering kind of how you have handled exit in that space. I know at least for myself as a person who entered through slam and entered through the youth poetry scene, there was such a long while where there was a gap between people recognizing that I was an adult. Right. And doing completely different things than what I was doing previously. So I'm wondering what that space has been like for you. So I think there were kind of discrete phases of of my life in poetry because mostly because I moved when I was 16 and I moved to a different part of the country and I still wanted to pursue poetry and they didn't necessarily have the same opportunities and resources. So I, I went to try something different. And I spent a lot of time writing. And when beforehand I had been writing with friends, I had been writing in groups, I had been writing in workshops and stuff like that. Really for the first time in my life, I started writing in my bedroom just by myself or at my desk or in, you know, in school. I had to sit with the fact that, okay, I have yet to really encounter who I am as a poet in my poetry. I have yet to find that. And there's a a sizable incubation period for any, I feel like for any youth poet to actually find their voice because when you're young, you're so impressionable and you you have these other youth poets that you admire and you have these adult poets that you admire. And at least for me, it started in a lot of imitation. And my mom obviously is the poet too. So I started imitating her and stuff like that. First of all, I'm all for finding your voice through imitation. I think innovation comes when it's supposed to. And so obviously that's not like plagiarize somebody's work or plagiarize somebody's style. But I think, especially when you're young, you don't have a reference point for yet for what you want to say or, or what, how you want to say it or you know what form it should take. For the first time, I started reading poems on my own. And that was mostly because you know I felt I was alone for the first time and I felt kind of lonely. And so it was really hard for me socially to adjust to being in that space and then kind of moving, being taken out of it so abruptly. Don't feel like I made a great transition when I moved because I I was a little bit sad. I probably didn't reach out to people, probably didn't reach out to poets and stuff like that. You know, I take everything, every moment, every phase in life for the good and the bad. And I think the good that came out of that situation was, okay, I finally said to myself, well, I have all the foundation I need to feel confident in writing poems. And now I want to be confident in writing my poems and writing what I want to say. You know, I love the way you worded that this idea that you were you learned to write a poem and then you learned how to write your poems. And I think there's something really beautiful that happens when you really settle into your voice and not just the craft concept of voice. Right, right. So with that, I want to ask you, you have this essay on fireworks and the human call for wonder, which banger. Thank you. Banger. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Just want to put that in the atmosphere. And Brittany and I were talking about it and we were talking about the things that happen as we age and how that aging shifts us as writers. When I was younger, like you write a poem and immediately like you getting your homies on the phone, y'all meeting before the meeting so you could hear this new hot fire. Like there was just so much excitement around the work and not that there's not now, but it's just different. And so after reading your essay, I was wondering, what are you doing to preserve your wonder of the world Mm. and of craft and how has maybe that wonder shifted because, you know, there are different types of wonder as you age, but what are you doing to preserve it? Oh, absolutely. As I get older, I feel smaller and not, that's not a bad thing though. I feel like the world is so big and I am such a small speck of life on, on this planet, this moving rock. And I used to be terrified about that. I used to be, terrified because I thought that that meant that 
either my life didn't matter or what I do doesn't matter or who I I loved, they don't matter and stuff like that. So, but that's not true. In fact, I think it's the opposite. When I started getting into nature and I going on these nature hikes, going to, I learned what an arboretum is. Wait, can you pause for a second? Because I don't know what that is. Can you? Okay. <laughs> what is that? Yeah. Arboretum. <laughs> Thank is you for a, asking that. <laughs> it's the really fancy word for like tree garden or ah. something like like a like a tree park. Like, what? You better educate us on this podcast, <laughs> one. So when I got into nature and I, I got into photography just because I wanted to capture the natural world and these ceaseless, endless cycles of beauty and flowers and trees and water and animals and stuff like that. And I'm like, we are living inside of a moving miracle. It's like, it's, it's almost, it's, it's, it's almost like we take for granted all this stuff. Like this stuff doesn't have to be here. This stuff, I'm just, sometimes I get emotional thinking about it because I'm just like, I think about all the things in a single day that I take for granted. That is literally a miracle or literally like something that elevates the beauty of this world and does not die, only changes and evolves and, and, or goes through these cycles and transformations. For example, so I wanted to write, recently I wanted to write a poem about a sequoia tree. I've never seen a sequoia tree, but I know that they live 3,000 years and that they are hundreds of feet tall. And I just imagine myself standing at the base of one and being like, I can never be that. I can, I just can't be that endless. I can't be that, that sturdy and, and solidified and sure of myself. But it's here for a reason. I can admire that. That was one of the hardest poems I ever had to write because I just didn't know how to capture it. I felt like I couldn't I didn't have the words or images to capture what I wanted to. And to this day, I still feel like it's a poem that I'm going to return to and try to edit what I actually <laughs> see as a queer tree. Because <laughs> I was thinking, I was basically writing hypothetically. I was like, if I were to see as a queer tree, you know. <laughs> and that, the challenge of trying to capture that is really, is really what reinvigorates me to, to consider the beauty of the world and consider how massive it is and how expansive our our ecosystems are and stuff like that. And just realizing that I am a cog in the machine. I'm I'm gladly a cog in the machine. I will serve my purpose. I will be of service to the world, just like that sequoia tree is of service to the world. I mean, I think it does, because I think wonder, especially when you juxtapose it with like the cynicism that typically comes as we age, right? Mm. The older I got, the more I was like, oh, this world is not what I thought it was. Or how you said, you know, now I feel like a a speck, whereas when I was younger, I felt so invincible. I felt like the whole world was like, you know, they say main character syndrome, like, yeah, surely yeah. all of this revolves around me. And the older I got, the more I was like, oh, this has nothing to do with me. Yeah. So I think that's a really gorgeous way to think about wonder is reminding ourselves like how small we are in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. I feel really similarly when I think about the ocean. Like I'm not a big nature person, but when you start thinking about the ocean and how vast it is, I'm like, wow, that's crazy. I've always had a deep fear of water and large bodies of water. I think a lot of that comes from like a deep respect and admiration mm-hmm. for what it is and its power. Kind of like how some people will say like God fearing and stuff like that, like water fearing in that sense, like fear in the sense of awe, like just complete, utter, total, absolute awe for this thing and the, its power and its beauty. That is so beautiful. Water fearing. If you don't title a poem water fearing, okay, and, <laughs> and write that whole situation, write that devotional. I'm also so struck by the way you talk about this concept of getting older, making you realize how small you are. And I Mm -hmm. think part of that, being able to see the things around you more clearly, like being able to see the magnitude of the spaces around you and how it almost centers you and a kind of gratitude, because it's very difficult to be grateful for what's around you when like you see yourself as too large in comparison. I'm thinking about the way that you... uh, are talking about nature and how it informs your work and how it informs your practice specifically. And then also thinking about that as its own sort of ecosystem, like the the world that you're building around us using myth and mysticism and wonder and place and earth and time. And 
I'm also wondering if that, I know how it informs your poetics, or you spoke a bit of how it informs your poetics. I'm wondering how it informs your understanding of community or your role in community, especially since we're talking about like shifting out of spaces and now making new discoveries. How does that concept of an ecosystem take place when we're thinking about community? I think a good way to enter into answering that question is by talking about the poem I plan on reading at the end. It's it's a poem kind of in the voice of John Coltrane. John Coltrane has a, first of all, one of my favorite musicians. Second of all, he has an interview towards the end of his life. With, he's talking about, you know, why he makes music and what he imagines to be his future and, you know, what, what he thinks his place in the world and stuff like that. He says, I want to be a force for real good. And he goes on to say something to be effective. I know that there are forces for good. That kind of just truly in the simple in, in simple terms really just embodies what I what I want, why I make art or why what I want my art to be, whether I'm making poetry or music or whatever. I just want to be a force for good. I think all humans somewhere deep down in their soul have have this desire for, for goodness, this desire mm. to be a good person. <laughs> and it's sorry, I, I know. I I had to I was gonna say all people and then I was like, oh, maybe deep down in their soul <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> It's some of these folks. Yeah, I'm the optimist. I'd be trying. And so, yeah, that tension is always present in my life. But I want to be a force for good inside the poem and outside the poem, within and without. I want to be in community with people. I want to love people restlessly and ceaselessly. I want to be radically loving when I can, generous and give gratitude to people, be humble in the space of other people and stuff like that. I think that is what that desire really drives my poetry because I started to think over this past year, I was just like, wait, I'm not the only person. I feel, so the the pandemic made me feel really bad, but I'm not the only person feeling bad right now. And I think what would make me feel better is somehow being out there trying to make other people feel better too. I want my poetry to bear witness to the beauty of a good deed. I like to think of the term of vocation, which is something that I've gotten into recently. I recently wrote a poem about feeling like having a vocation called A Calling, and it's inspired by uh, this like Caravaggio painting, of the, calling of, the Calling of St. Matthew. And it's just, I really felt like I want to be called towards something. And, and I want to know what that calling is. I want to hear it when it comes and respond to it when it comes. And so when I was younger, I was called, I knew I was called to write or if not to write, then to be around writers or make make some sort of art, right? And now that I'm older, I feel a call for kind of teaching or giving giving back. It's one of my favorite things to do. I like workshopping, especially with young young people. That's kind of like one of my favorite areas of service in my life is is kind of, is, it's just giving people what I was given as a, what I was lucky enough to have, fortunate enough to have. I want to look to others and take inspiration from others and hopefully provide inspiration in the ways that I can. So yeah, still, still working through the idea of what it means to be a poet in a community, but also i feel like just being a human in a community is more than enough. I know this was like a question from before when we asked about your preservation of wonder, but I just want to like articulate that I feel like in the way that you're talking about thinking about the work, I feel like I can see so much evidence of the wonder you've preserved and it's really beautiful. And it makes me want to go back and be like, what have I lost that I need to return Mm. to? So I'm just, I'm super grateful. I do want to go a little bit back to something and shift gears. So you've talked a little bit about music and we know that you out here winning awards for music criticism and like, we know that this influences your work, right? Yeah. Who is your problematic fave in the music world? Oh, man. We are oh, dying wow. to know. <laughs> oh, wow. Because we heard uh, about your favorite favorites, but I'm like, I wonder. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we are.
are dying to know. I definitely have a lot of guilty pleasures, like people who I'm like, man, I wish I didn't like this right now. But it's so good. Um, <laughs> What's that little Wrecking Ball song by Miley Cyrus? I'm not going to lie. Like it goes. <laughs> that I don't want to bop to it, but I bop to it. As that far as like a, like a problematic fave slash guilty pleasure artist, I've been like really obsessed with Taylor Swift for the past four months or not four months, four weeks. And it's so bad. It's bad. I've gotten a lot of, I've gotten so much grief from it from my friends and I can and cannot explain, but I've gotten a lot more into like country music and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And like, you know, like, I don't know. It's kind of a guilty pleasure, but also it's like country music is black music. Listen, listen, country music is, country music is, is poor folks music. It's Southern music. It's, it's all those things. So it's not, I I don't like that it's become so one dimensionalized, so to speak. But at the same time, we're reclaiming myth. We're reclaiming country music. Yeah. I just hate, I just, just did not like her for a long time. And I think part of it is because I just thought there was no possible way that that music could resonate with somebody with an with my identity or like I don't know how how exactly to word it, but I didn't think that there was a way in for me for some, me to listen like somebody like Taylor Swift. So I was actually kind of a Taylor Swift hater for a long time. And then my friend sent me this song, like, oh, I think you'll you really like this song because it's really beautiful and it's like your type of writing style. And I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. I listened to it and I was like, oh man, <laughs> this song is so well written. And I guess it provided me a lesson on a like. You may think that you are too dissimilar to relate to somebody or too dissimilar to bask in somebody's art or somebody's passions. But until you actually give that person a chance and hear them out, it's experienced differently. Don't get me wrong. It's definitely experienced differently. Like Taylor Swift is pretty much a rich white girl from Pennsylvania who's been famous since she was 16. And I won't ever try to try to be that person that's like her experience the same as mine. No, you know, but at the same time. I guess it was a lesson in listening, truly listening to people. And in that sense, I, 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 the fact that I could empathize with Taylor Swift and the stuff that she was saying in her song was like mind boggling to me at first, but it makes sense now. I was just going to say, I think that points back to what you were saying earlier about myth, right? And how Mm -hmm. myths continue to survive and continue to be, you know, repeated because Mm -hmm. of, because of our common shared experiences and moreover, our common shared fears and grief. Mm-hmm. Also, yeah. not you about to have me go listen to a Taylor Swift album just to oh, check out man. the vibes. <laughs> yeah. Just to check out the vibes. <laughs> I'm not a strong enough fan to be like a, a proponent of Taylor Swift. Like, go listen to Taylor <laughs> Swift. But I will say that there are some bangers there. And even thinking about what you said about COVID, right? And how we were all so lonely. And I think it took me grief can be so insular that it took me a while to be like, oh, other people are also experiencing this horrific grief. Like, you know how there's a way where you sad that you feel like the world is supposed to stop and then you look around and it hasn't stopped. So then you're like, is anybody else sad? I think it took a while to realize that, no, we're all sad as hell, right? So thinking about that listening and that universality and and small things, right? Like pop and love and, and romance and heartbreak, I think is important. I had a good conversation with somebody the other day about loneliness and the fact that, especially for somebody like me who's a little more introverted and quiet and a little shy and likes to keep a lot of stuff in the mind and, you know, very cerebral and stuff like that. I think it's hard for you while you're in a state of loneliness to realize that everybody is lonely. Everybody has experienced loneliness. It's so hard because like that's that's the ten, that's the actual conflict of loneliness is that you feel like people can't re- understand it. They don't relate to you and you feel kind of sheepish and embarrassed to bring it up. But like everybody has experienced it. Even the people who you envy for being for being so well connected and having all these people there for them, they are lonely too. 
it gives some meaning to the experience because it means that, okay, this is something that not only I struggle with or I have to go through, but everybody has to go through. Listen, you are giving a craft talk on interconnectedness. Okay? I was about to say, Wes is an elder. Listen, <laughs> Wes is an elder. I don't care, okay, that we brought you on and wanted you to talk about <laughs> your transition to moving out of the youth scene. Wes is an elder. <laughs> so speaking of your eldership, right? <laughs> In this wonderful transition. I'm not going to be that weirdo who's like, ooh, what's coming next, right? And put the pressure mm-hmm. to be like... Tell me what you're doing right now, because who knows what any of us are doing right now. But I am interested in where your projects have been leaning towards, right? Because I know you said your writing is looking a lot at like ecosystem and home and wonder, but wondering about the collective of what you're working on, like what's what's good, but it was happening. Yeah. Oh, man. I've been trying to start to like kind of less... Material, like less material markers of progress or, you know, stuff like little stuff. Like, so when I think of a project now, I think of something I'm doing to cultivate, cultivate some skill or some virtue or cultivate mindfulness. Right. Mm. So I've started to water plants, for instance. So that's, that's something Mm. that I'm doing. I consider that a project now because it's, I'm trying to, it's something I'm doing to cultivate my life to increase my, mindfulness to increase my the fact that to really reassert that love for nature and stuff like that also learning guitar has been a big thing for me recently like stuff like that but besides that type of stuff which i i find i'm trying to consider equal of equal importance to like the more literary things and artful things that i'm doing i've been writing a lot of essays recently i've started writing a memoir the other day, a small memoir, like memoir essay, flash memoir, whatever you want to call it, I guess. I'm still writing poems. Hopefully one day I'll have a collection or a book or something if I can get them all on the same page with each other, figuratively speaking. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like, these poems, like the poems I was writing a year ago are like, oh man, that's not the same poetry I write right now. I'm trying to keep myself always writing and dedicate myself to that craft. And also I've gone into... The last thing I'll say is I've gotten into a lot of visual stuff in the past year or so. And first of all, if there's anybody out there who wants to teach me how to produce music or how to play guitar, how to do something like that. Yeah, I'm definitely open to <laughs> Listen, that. Listen, I heard it here, okay? <laughs> I love taking pictures of people, capturing pictures, capturing people's beauty. It's my, I love it. So that's something I'm looking forward to in the near future if I can rally up my spirits to do it. I think that's so cool and such a, like... A, a smart way to look at it, right? Just going with the flow of your interests, your passions. Mm-hmm. I love the shooting your shot and being like, look, if you know, <laughs> holla at the kid, because that's the way to do it. Because somebody knows and they're going to follow up. It's going to be a thing you spoke in. I want to ask you our, our signature question, which is, and we'll ask this and then go to break. But if you could choose three people whose work we need to study engage with in order to understand your work who would they be oh wow three people okay so i'm going to say stevie wonder i'm going to say rita dove and okay here's what i'm going to falter i don't know the third one's always the hardest yeah third one is always the hardest because i I could go like a totally different direction in genre right now hit the spicy Um, take <laughs> We're here for it. Okay. I'm just going to say what I want to say. I am a big fan of, and these aren't to say that these are my favorite like artists or anything like that, but that they are essential to who I, who I feel like I am, as, as just to preface that. So, mm-hmm. so people are no, like, wow. It. But I'm really into radio and stuff like that, specifically sports broadcasting radio. I think it's especially baseball. I'm a huge baseball fan. And I think listening to there's there's a poetic quality about radio broadcasts in baseball particularly because it's uh, it's a it's a slow sport it leaves a lot of room and area for storytelling and creative interpretation and my favorite sports broadcaster is the broadcaster of the Detroit Tigers and his name is Dan Dickerson and I listen to him probably I probably consume like his words and voice more than I consume like anybody else's like other than people I interact with on a day-to-day basis so I think I think he's essential to my work I would say and he I, I don't know if he's essential like I draw direct stylistic inspiration from him 
but I think he's essential in the fact that he inspires me. So he, he inspires, he makes me feel like I'm, it's, it's worth it or it's something, you know? I love that. Okay, well, we can so go break. Like a, yeah. <laughs> So this versus that is really simple. We will give you two choices and you're going to tell us who you think would win in a fight and why. I like the explanation part. Okay. Yes. Yes. It's very, it's very critical. Yeah. Okay. So this versus that your choices are the sequoia tree (laughs) versus Narcissus. Oh, Oh. (laughs) See, the sequoia tree, if it used its full power, it would win. Mm. But it's so tender and gentle, and it's like a gentle giant, I imagine. So I don't think it would lose. I think Narcissus would win because of that spirit, the fighting spirit. So I think it comes down to demeanor in that case and not capability. Mm. So are you saying that the sequoia tree could win but would choose it, it, not it to could win yeah it, it choose, would sacrifice choose, it surrender itself. yeah it was sacrifices exactly it was Ooh, no surrender surrender i like the word, I like the word you use the sequoia <laughs> tree would would rather surrender than yeah. violate something someone. something like that something along those lines how you got me torn up in this versus that way <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i tried to i tried i don't know i, I was like for a second i was like oh sequoia but then i thought about it and i was like no mm. I love it. <laughs> I'm really going to be pondering. You make me want to choose the most tender, thoughtful answer every time, Wes. And I think that that's a gift. Like It is. I'm really processing the way that you consider things and I like it. Thank you. You're welcome. Would you do us the honor of closing us out with one last poem? Absolutely. This is the poem that I mentioned earlier. It's about John Coltrane. It's called John Coltrane Plays Giant Steps with No One Else in the Room. I'm ascending up a spiral staircase with a price to my step. Steepness is my only worry, so I thought, but then I reckoned up my destination. Nowhere fast. Don't ask where I'd be going. I hardly recall the last place. City spurned me off before I played my ode to her morning, half diminished. Me and my song, we took off like newspaper clippings, flying in westward wind, burning for an escape, and then a joint to play, and then a way to lay down these troubles for good. I don't find love in places easy, so I improvise. Blow changes in a new voice, hit a stride with a sputtering rhythm, sun in my eyes like God wants something more for me and I'm too strong to find it. I I try to be an instrument of my own longing, something to rock this misery to sleep before it rock me. But all I got is this shot in the dark solo, this one last chance to translate the static of my soul, a riff just pretty enough to put down the habit and pick up the pace prayer like never before. All my life, I've been striving for this tune I could not find. I had to live without it, and then I had to live within it, make something of the notes on the page without mistaking a line for gospel. It's all about finding a feel that moves you forward, keep those cold feet a shuffle, This world betrayed me, and I still carry on with my song. That's how you know I love it. Ooh, if we was at the slam, I'd throw something at you, okay? (laughs) If we was back in slam days, just Would have been yelling, go in, poet! That's a note for Yes. Thank you so much, Wes. Like, I, I literally cannot articulate how much of a gift this conversation was, like... Thank you so much for being our guest today, Wes. We loved, loved, loved talking to you and can't wait for the world to hear this conversation. Thank you. It means a lot to me. Wes is so wildly brilliant. Like, that was, that was stunning. A damn good episode, okay? Taught me some things. Taught me some things. I think one of the things, Wes is so brilliant and so interior in their evaluation of their obsessions, the things they're thinking about in in their work and in not just in their work and their processing that it's convicting for me. Also, I'm super grateful for the way Wes talked, the way Wes sees the poetic and everything and not just like, oh, 
the way we leisurely talk about, you know, this thing is a poem, but to see craft visible, craft, musicality, all of these things visible and something that I would have never been able to imagine makes me also convicts me. It's like, you need to be looking harder. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Because obviously you are not (laughs) observing the way you need to be observed. So it just, it just not, not in a, it, it just makes me want to be a better observer of the world around me. It makes me want to be more seeking, more questioning, more curious. And it makes me want to interrogate where I've abandoned curiosity yeah, and, and, wonder. and wonder. Yes. Because, because wow, to, to approach the, the mundane things in my life with the kind of wonder that Wes is approaching the mundane things in his life with like who might I be? What might happen to my craft? Right. Like I, I'm, I definitely, am going to be trying to bring that more into practice because I am certainly, um, I'm, I'm not quite a pessimist, but I'm very close. <laughs> um, it is what happens when you bit. are, practical, you know, you know? Uh, very, practical, <laughs> very practical, very, very realistic. But even thinking about how realistic I am, there are the number of things that have happened to me in the last few years that had you asked me before, I would have bet money. Like I would never do that. Or this thing would never happen. Or that's not a possibility for me right now. And watching those things become possibilities, I think has opened me up a bit. And I think listening to Wes is opening me up even more because I'm like, what if I approach this thing with that same sense of like wonder and excitement about it versus, oh, I already know what's happening with that thing because yeah. I'm approaching it with this practicality. So that's something I'm going to be thinking about for a long time. It was really, it's really cool. Yeah, no, same. So thinking about that, thinking about the things we maybe want to retain from our time as youth poets, the sense of wonder, all of these things. What's something that you would tell your youth poet self? Like knowing where you are now as a writer, as somebody Ooh. who like, like, best you got a career. You know what I mean? <laughs> you got a career, game. That's wild. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I think what I would tell myself, both out of a combination for what I feel like I could have done better and what I feel like I did very well is to take the relationships that I make in poetry very seriously, especially the mentorship. Like I often tell people that I kick myself when I think about the people who were like my first teachers at Inside Out. Matthew Oseman was like my literal first instructor with Inside Out. Francine J. Harris was there. Erica Foreman was there. Bobby Francis was in Detroit. And because I was so young, the I really didn't conceptualize who, who they were, were, right? Like not in terms of who you are in the poetry business, but just in terms of like how valuable my relationship was with them and how much I was learning from them because I was taking myself as a poet completely for granted. It's like, oh, I just show up and I write poems with these folks every week. But now I'm like, oh my God, why didn't you ever ask Matthew this? Or why didn't you ask Francine this? But on the flip side, I do think that what I did a solid job at and what I would encourage youth poets to do is that those relationships grew with me. So even though I don't think I realized what I had at the time, I think that the bond that was formed, right, and the the trust that was formed means that I can still at any time call Erica Foreman and be like, hey, I was wondering about this thing. Or, hey, I'm going to be in your city. Like, can we go out for coffee or something of the sort? And even all of my, some of my most consistent friendships are people who I met in Citywide Poets. I am married to one of them. <laughs> Ajene Dawkins is yeah. sitting across from me, right? Yeah. Joseph Verge, Grover Eastern. Like, they're, these are Ariana. the homies. Ariana, like, yes. these are still my loves. So I think if I was talking to youth poet me, I would just remind myself not to take this as, like, a fleeting phase in my life. Yeah. But to consider that this could be my life's work. Like, this could be my lifetime. And so then to think carefully about how to transition those relationships like for a lifetime versus for just that short season. Mm. Oh, that's that's so good. I also think that's such a strange thing to think about the folks even we were reading week to mm-hmm. week. And I'm like, like, I remember them bringing in poems from Nate Marsh from all of these folks and me being 16, 17, being yeah. like, who are these people? <laughs> Like, you know, I have poem, but, you know, I got careless with my notes, and I'm like, bitch, I wish I had those notes. What was it that the kid said about a kidney? Like, what was the... Don't, don't remember a doggone thing. Wish I had, 
wish I had those notes and like having to be eased into the understanding of reading. So, shoot. What would you tell your young youth poet self, Beth? I think I would tell my youth poet self that all my gifts, all my obsessions, all of those things would make room for me, which is like a very cliche, like, you know, your gifts will make room for you. But like that there would be a way for all of the things that I was concerned with to come together and that they didn't have to be in conflict with one another. Like me writing poems about my mother didn't have to be in conflict with my mother. It could be in collaboration with her and it could be a thing that grew us in our relationship and awareness of ourselves as opposed to a thing that I had to do in rebellion to stand in my truth. And I would tell myself to always value the community over the work because I think being a good community member, a good larger community member is something that I had to learn to do. And I don't think it was something that was inherent. And I think in a lot of ways, one of the things that sometimes youth poet culture teaches that we break out of or hopefully we break out of as adults hopefully hopefully we break out of as adults is a kind of tribalism because you learn to love your team yeah you learn to love deeply your team like if somebody I will go hard for my team and then we go and everybody is in these team pockets or everybody is in these small group pockets but we don't learn what it means to bridge across these myriad of spaces because it is always our team in competition with these other teams. Again, if you're coming from the slam space, which, you know, is is our experience. And so I would I would want to teach myself that. Or I would want to tell myself that. I was also going to say something about peer mentorship, but I feel like we did that. I feel like we were constantly like, let, like I was like, can you teach me this? And I'll Listen, teach you this. We, we really wasn't playing with that. We was on it. So. We was not playing with that. <laughs> To this day. Yes. All right, so let's do some thank yous and and get out of here. Yes. Who do you want to thank this week, Beth? Inside Out Literary Arts Project in Detroit. Listen, founded by uh, Terry Blackhawk, currently under the direction of the amazing Suma Rosen. Shout out to all of y'all. Thank you. For decades of dedication to youth in Detroit and surrounding cities, for helping me believe that I could be a professional writer. Like, yes. For teaching me things like how to do a CV when I'm in high school. Not nary a thing on that CV, but teaching me to... <laughs> I was so... Oh, my God. I forgot about our CVs. We were so cute. Listen. <laughs> but for really this continued dedication to cultivating youth voice for everybody who works at I.O. The thing I love most about I.O. is that so many of the people who work there, Shantae Brown, Justin Rogers, Pete Marcus, Elisa Lucy, these are people who have been with Inside Out for, for decades. Years, like People who came up and through the program. And for me, that's always the mark of knowing that the org is doing the work that it's hoping to do or pushing towards the work that it's hoping to do because we know, you know, no organization is perfect. However, it says something when you're a youth in a program and you want to come back and work for the program and then you look up years because later and you're still... You're still connected because we all did. Yes. We we literally all came back and worked for Inside Out. Yep. Inside Out could call me right now and I'd be like, <laughs> I'll be there. <laughs> I just was city rap poets instructor <laughs> at cast for the last four years. So shout out to y'all. Y'all are our thank you this week so much again for everything. And then we also must thank Wes Matthews, of course, for his brilliance, his rigor, his intellect, his seeing and wondering. We want to say thank you to Poetry Foundation, to Itzel Blancas, to Adami Noriega, to Elon Sloan, to our wonderful producer, Sin Pim and Omni Productions. And we also want to ask you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts at because we are on all of those platforms. Until next time, loves. Bye, y'all.